My name is Matthew Fort, and this is my daughter Lois. And my name is Lois Fort, and this is my dad, Matthew. Hello, Dad. Hello, darling. What a marvellous thing to see you. Now, what are we talking about this week? Well, this week we're talking a little bit about food, war and peace, I think. What we hate and what we hate a little less. Well, I actually love. Food I love. Food I love, love, love. Now, um, should we start with hates or loves? Well, how have you looked at this in terms of hates and loves? Well, I've just created a great big list of things that I hate because it gets and I had to stop because it gets longer and longer and longer. Shall I read you out a few of them? You're probably familiar with most of them. Okay. I know. I reckon I'd probably guess them, but you go for it. Peanut butter. Peanut butter. It's a loathsome thing. It coats your mouth. It it stops you from tasting anything else. It's like it's like having sort of semi-set cement. Poor Daniel. I'm definitely. Brain. I'm. I'm with you on that. Definitely. I can't stand it. It's like eating cement. But I did go through a phase when we went to America once in my teenage years of getting into Reese's Pieces. You know those chocolates <laughs> that are filled with peanut butter. Oh, They're yeah. so sweet. It's quite terrifying. Um, like, which is it's about as close to peanut butter I've got to enjoying. So, Dad, what do you think it is about peanut butter that you find so frightfully offensive? Because do you eat peanuts? Well. Yes, I do, and and I always feel bad about it when I when I've done so. I always feel shame. I've given in to my baser instincts. But the point about is is that um, peanut butter is is just sort of it's sort of sludge, isn't it? It's peanut sludge, and it has that terrible effect of coating the whole inside of your mouth, so you cannot taste anything else afterwards for hours. I agree, but I actually think you've you've raised a much more important point than both of us hating peanut butter, which is why on earth would you feel guilty for eating peanuts? Listen, I love a cashew. I particularly love an almond. A Brazil has its part. And There's I... nothing bad for you in a nut. It's just a little snack. It's not like we're talking about eating mounds and mounds of chocolate. You don't do that, do you? When you come to peanuts, you don't <laughs> eat just the peanut, do you? You don't have one little peanut. You have... You have a handful. You pick them up, you handful, you bunch them in your hand, and you get boom. So actually, it's the fact that it reminds you of an inability to restrain yourself. You're getting very philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're in agreement on peanut butter. But yeah. right, you go on, give me another one of yours. What else do you not like? Lolo Rosso lettuce. You know why Lolo Rosso? What's, is- what's Lolo Rosso? Did you know what Lolo Rosso is? That frilly sounds like a Teletubby from Italy. It's well, do you know you're not far wrong. It was, it is a frilly lettuce that you get in most supermarkets, and chefs love it because it looks pretty and bulks up the the, the lettuce offering, the salad offering. There is something you should know about Lolo Rosso. (laughs) Okay. It was devised by some ingenious um, botanist. It's named after a. There was a famous, oh, back in the day, there was a famous film, Italian film star called Gina Lollabrigida, who is famous for wearing frilly knickers. This lettuce was named after <laughs> Gina Lollabrigida's frilly knickers. And that tells you everything you need to know what it's like eating. It's like eating knickers. I didn't think it was possible to try and sex up lettuce, but you've, you've well, gone uh, got as, about as close as you can. Well, okay. I'll, get, I'll come on to it because its its near cousin is another of my new pet hates. <laughs> Kalettes. 
It sounds like a fifties fifties backing group, doesn't it? You know, this, it sounds like it sounds like a conversation for you know yummy mummies in their Range Rovers after yoga, having some kailets. Yeah, so we're, we're, but it has the same thing. They're little frilly things of nothing, which are which, and these are worse than lolly rosé because they're soggy because they've been cooked. It's not. A, <laughs> oh it is, God! It's not a pleasant thing, and it's a new. It's supposed to be a cross between a Brussels sprout and a kale. Hence, oh, I mean, we have to struggle enough with Brussels sprout as it is, let alone trying to convince it to be something else. Well, they love chefs love them, unfortunately, because they look decorative on the plate. And when something just looks decorative on the plate, you have every right to be very suspicious of it. <laughs> Spoken like a man who's eaten in a lot of restaurants. OK, now, I think you should give us give us something. Come on. Well, I struggle when I think about my food hates because, well, I suppose a bit like you're saying, none of mine are very taste related a lot of my food dislikes are textural temperature related mm. or cooking method related so i i hate anything mushy so don't show me a a marshmallow or offal i can't stand offal because of the mushy texture offal uh, excuse me just hold no we're not we are not at your food loves yet you, you can right. just okay. so i've got a lot of textural hates but i also have some temperature dislikes so i don't like warm Dairy. So, never understood warm custard on a pudding. Oh, this is a tragedy. No, cold custard, and preferably not just cool, like warm, like room temperature, cold, straight out the fridge. Well, you might as well just have a you know, custard ice cream. No problem. Fine. I'll do that. <laughs> of, course, of course, ice cream is actually just frozen custard in, in this. It is. For the flavour. But I, I love crumble on, as crumble on, custard on a crumble, but never warm. Because also, when you heat up custard, it gets thinner. And the beauty of custard is its gloopiness and how it's sort of, you have a whole kind of textural experience with it, which is so nice. When you thin it out, it's just, it loses its character for me. Well, you see, that's an interesting point because I think that if custard is properly made with with eggs and milk, as it should be, as as it gets warmer, it should get slightly thicker because you know, the egg yolks help to thicken the thing in the um, and it's your commercial stuff that get, ends up on the thin side. I was I about to say the subcontext here might be that you're making your own custard and I'm buying ambrosia. That might be where we're going wrong. If I'm if I'm being strictly honest about this, now I buy tubs or cartons of the stuff from the supermarket because <laughs> I like nothing better than just pouring it down my throat and when I'm <laughs> feeling uh, when I'm feeling a bit in need of being cheered up, give me a, a pot of ready made industrialised custard. I um, totally agree with you. And while we're quickly while we're talking about warm warm dairy, it made me think of um of my aunt, your late sister-in-law, Dilu. Mm. And when I was little, um, you know, under 10, and used to go and stay with them because I had three cousins similar aged, she used to have the same breakfast on the table every single morning when we came downstairs, whether we'd asked for it or not. And it consisted of a plate with one piece of white toast that had been cut in half on the diagonal. So you had two triangles. One was buttered only, and one had raspberry jam, but no butter, which was always a disappointment. And the other thing that you had in front of you was a bowl of not very many uh, chocolate cocoa pops with an enormous dosing of hot milk. Well, you have to remember, Delu, who was a... She was a dear, dear, lovely woman, the kindest heart in Christendom. Yes. But she was French. 
And French have <laughs> no idea what, what breakfast should really be. I mean, they may do with a croissant, and a good croissant is a fine breakfast, but they stop at croissants. They, have, they don't have the sort of range of wonderful breakfasts that we have over here. And, and she, she did have rather austere tastes in certain areas, which is curious because she was a really good cook. She was a very good cook, yeah. I'm sure no, she'll come no. up in another in another I, session of ours. I want to ask you a question, however. I just one of the things mm. you haven't mentioned, which you used to loathe when you were a little girl, were tomatoes. Mm. <gasps> tomatoes, tomatoes, and I, we've had a history. Tomatoes were well. I'm going to have to involve Peter in this conversation when I tell the story because mm. he, my boyfriend, calls tomatoes as do ninety percent of his family the devil's fruit. So they have they they live in shame uh, in this household a lot of the time, as they did for me until I was nineteen. I hated tomatoes other than in tomato sauce. Couldn't eat a raw tomato. The whole texture it was, again for me it was a textual experience. Mm. Biting into tomato, that whole explosion and the seeds going everywhere, just revolting. And the reason I changed my mind is because when I was in Australia on my gap year, living with no money and uh, mostly on pot noodles, um, a friend of a friend who we were staying with made us delicious cheese and tomato toasties in a toasty maker. And that was the start of my tomato turnaround. Your, and now I love them. Absolutely love them. Your journey to the to the heart of the tomato. You might but like I don't think it's unusual. I think a lot of people don't love tomatoes in their youth and they come around. The the, the French name for the tomato, uh, it's probably tomate now, but it used to be pomme d'amour. Oh, the apple of love. That's a love. lovely name. The apple of love. So there you the go. Apple of love. That's you quite fall, nice. You've fallen in love with the apple of love, my darling. Um, love. Okay. All right. Any more food hates oh, at your end? Well, there are a whole lot of phrases which I connected with food. I thought you might go there. But I absolutely, I have a, have a particular um, loathing of because basically because they're meaningless and they don't actually add to your understanding of what food taste like i'm gonna have a guess at one of yours okay tell me heaven on a plate ah no not heaven on a plate cooked to perfection nothing is ever cooked to bloody perfection it's, there's no such thing as perfection in food it's absolutely are you telling me are you telling me that all your years of eating in the finest restaurants of the world you've never sat in the, the gavroche and had an exquisite piece of offal or something extraordinary and thought cooked to perfection couldn't couldn't do any better <laughs> I would never describe it as that. It's an, it's an insult to the food. Of course, you know, it's, there's something so utterly wonderful, illuminating. You know, like, but, you know, there's always, you know, there's, I, I remember the first, well, the second time I reviewed the, the Fat Duck, I gave it a mark. I used to mark out of 20 and I gave it 19 and a half out of 20. Because there's always room for improvement. <laughs> well, when Hester Blumenthal said rather, I said, why did you only give me, you know, 19 and a half out of 20? I said, because I want to keep you hungry. And you've got to push, you've got to push, you've got to push. Okay, another one. It's true. Decadent. Why do we describe food as decadent? It's such well, a... why on earth not? Because it's not decadent. It's such a Puritan view. Food is beautiful and wonderful and exquisite. and, and... Hold on. Decadence is a fantastic word. We all know what it means. It means over the top. It means something you're not going to get very often. It means it's that moment you might have been waiting for for three months. It's that holiday you've been praying for, or it's something. It's something you've mm. waited for for a long time, and then you really splash out. Why on earth can't food feel like that? Are you dis disagreeing with me? 
A little bit, yeah. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, I I think you know, I think people actually use it as a slight, in a slightly disparaging way, and I think that you know is that food is actually about joy and happiness and pleasure and all the good things in life, and to describe it as being decadent. Oh, it's you know, it's slightly gone over the top. No, it's not. It never goes over the top. Uh, yeah. I think you're quite you're you're a bit of a puritan about how one can speak about food. Okay, I want to say the humble. Why is there oh the humble carrot, the humble potato, <laughs> the humble onion? Yeah, why is food humble? What is that should be humble about? They should be proud. They should be. They should be standing, standing proud. Of these things. Well, I because think... it's a bit. It's a bit nicer than saying you're basic. Because that's really what you're saying. You're saying your basic carrot, your basic piece of celery. Humble. Oh it's just you know. It's God, just a kinder you... way of saying basic. Well, use the word basic. Don't use the word because humble again. It has it has a pejorative overtone. Oh, I'm so humble. I'm the Uriah heap of vegetables. <laughs> I am your humble servant. <laughs> your humble vegetable. Right. Okay. Melt in the oh. mouth. You know about Oh, I knew that might come along. Oh, I know you hate it. Absolutely hate it. Sorry, melt in the mouth. The thing is, is I want chocolate to melt in my mouth. I want butter to melt in my mouth. I want ice cream to melt in my mouth. I do not want meat to melt in my mouth. (laughs) Thank you. I want to chew a piece of meat. I do not want to think it's like a piece of chocolate. Anyway. Okay, so hold on. So if we were sitting at a restaurant and I ordered a chocolate pudding of some shape or form. Oh, no, no, no. Those, those, those can melt in your mouth. It's when it's applied to meat. People say, oh, okay. this steak. Oh, it was melting in the mouth. It was so delicious. And and actually, if you think about it, if you, if, if you have a particularly soft piece of meat, you don't chew it really very much. You just, a couple of chews, and you swallow it down, which means all the flavour is locked up inside it. You need a bit... I think I'll give you my theory of chewing perhaps on, a, on another podcast. I know. Wasn't there some king or something who chewed his food 40 times before he swallowed it for some well, reason? There was, there was Maybe a, that's a, the way to go. English prime minister. I think it was Gladstone they used to chew. There was actually there was a, there was a, a, a fashionable time for, 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 for chewing when, um, <laughs> when everybody used to, you know, sensible, healthy people would chew their food 40 times. One of them was Franz Kafka, believe it or not, and his, whose father became so irritated with his son chewing his food over the breakfast table 40 times that he used to go and hide behind the newspaper so he didn't have to watch him <laughs> chewing away. That gives you a new insight into Franz Kafka. I know uh, one, of your, one of your favourite authors, I'm, I know, John. I'm waiting all week for that. Okay. Um, okay. Right, before we move off food hates, which I think we should, hold on, I've got one more for you. This has become, maybe not a hate, but this is something I really don't understand, which I've been introduced to with the northerner in my life, Mm -hmm. is carb on carb, okay? Mm -hmm. So dishes that are a double, sometimes triple carbohydrate whammy, don't understand. So let's start with the, the, I've got a few, the butter pie. (laughs) Potato. In a pie. Yeah. So that's totally unnecessary. No, don't understand that at all. No, no, no. It's a it's, it's thing of wonder. See, there's a, <laughs> there's a different tradition of pie making up in... Actually, I think this is a whole other podcast. Pies. One of the glories of the English kitchen. English cooking, incidentally, not cuisine. Never cuisine. It's like another... Right, you're going, you're go, no, you're going on a tangent now, Dad. Yeah, we I'm, can come back to that on another podcast. No, but listen, but yeah. butter, butter pie, then chip butty... Don't understand the chip butty at all. 
I'm all for a sandwich, right? But you've got two pieces of bread. I've got my carbohydrates. Delicious. I love it. Why put in the middle more white carbohydrate? I think at this point we have to say that our producer, Jeff, who's from the north, is turned on his camera in order to look suitably horrified at what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm actually, <laughs> he's not allowed to comment at this stage. He could, no. do, that, he could do that later. He's looking uh, rather shocked. But the chip patty is a source of confusion. Okay, but I can tell you the one, the great thing about the, the, the chip butty is that it's actually, what it really is, is a vehicle for tomato ketchup. Oh, God, no, that makes it even worse. I can't uh, bear it. No. And particularly, but the absolute worst, the worst, 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 this one really gets me, which I've been introduced to, is the Wigan kebab. <laughs> Dad, do you know what a Wigan no, kebab is? No, I don't is? actually, to be honest, teach me. A Wigan kebab is adding insult to injury if we talk about carb on carb. So you start with your butter pie and then you put it in a balm cake, which is effectively a white bread roll. <laughs> I'm lost. It sounds absolutely... Well, I must say, <laughs> when uh, mother died, your grandma died, and I, and I inherited her box of... Uh, which I think I referred to the other day, um, of her, mm. her box of recipes. I found these recipes for... Wait for it. Deep fried suet cakes. Oh, <gasps> actually, they, they I are. I like a suet. I do like a suet something. You see, and then you've got you've got the crust on the outside, mm. crisp and and, and and just just crumbling to the tooth. And then you've got a soft, unctuous, fatty, slightly greasy <laughs> inside, and then you have and actually it was served with double cream and molasses. Do you know? Do you know what that sounds like, Dad? Heaven. It sounds like melt in the mouth. <laughs> okay, let's go on to let's. let's yeah, we've been we've been filled with filled with hatred for too long. Let's yeah, move yeah. on to let's the love. love. Let's have the love side. Okay, well we'll we'll do this one quickly because we focused on hate for a long time. So I mean, you know this about me. Needless to say, it's obvious to everybody who doesn't love a bit of pasta. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. adore well, it. I remember when you were when you were a, a, a novel a, a child, you'd have had pasta three damn times a day, seven days a week, three hundred sixty-five days of the year. If I was really honest, now that hasn't changed. Mm. It's delicious, but it's. I could talk a lot about things I love to eat. It's all quite boring, and some of it's very pedestrian, like we all love to eat. But I'll talk about some. I'll try and find some more unusual things. So, I have a big South African part of my life as you know that is where my mum is from and I, one of their snack delicacies that I'm obsessed with is biltong mm. um I, I could eat that all the time dried cured beef in various shapes or form I like it and this is one of maybe only two places that I would find using the word moist acceptable but I do like it quite moist so I like a bit of biltong I could snack on that for days um I'm a total vegetable freak I love vegetables I have loved ever since I was a child I remember you and mum always saying that if I was given a plate of food I'd often eat the vegetables first mm. and that hasn't changed I love vegetables I believe I, I like them to take up most of my plate and left to my own devices I will very often as you know this about me I've done various vegan or vegetarian stints I'll often eat just vegetables so I love veg particularly mushrooms can I can I can I interrupt yeah. at that point? Because yeah. I want to say this, this is something I share with you, darling. The very, right. very first thing that I ever got sick on was a pea. When I was when I, <laughs> when I was before I was able to before I was able to walk, 
I clambered out of my I clambered out of my pram and crawled into the veg patch at, at at the house where I grew up. Did you? I did. And after a while, my absence was suddenly noticed, and I was eventually tracked down in, you know, among the the pea sticks, with a whole stream of green vomit down my front because I gored <laughs> myself so heavily on peas. And I still, I have to say, love a pea. I love a pea. I do too. Particularly when they're actually before they're cooked. I just love popping yes. those pods and having those little little pearls of sweetness just mm, into your mouth. And actually, and you're right, fresh vegetable. I mean, that's the amazing thing when we come to visit you in the summer and we get to often have a plate of food where everything other than the protein has come out of your garden. It's really, it's so special and it does taste, just it just tastes different. Yeah, if you, the quicker you can get anything from mm. from the ground onto your plate, the better it is. And actually, that can I say that that also leads me on to one of my slightly more unusual things I was going to mention among my loves. Okay. My, my vegetable loves, compost heaps. I love a compost heap because it's taking <laughs> left. <laughs> no, bear with I'm, me. Bear I'm sorry. With me. My, my, my brain was still in the edible side of the world, so I'm trying. I'm, I'm, I'm adjusting. Yeah, well, it, it is. You see, it's the offshoots. You know, when you the, all your peelings, yeah. all your bits of rind, bits of stuff. You know, you. Yeah. you put it in a bucket and you tip it onto it. And over a period of time, nature has this miraculous way of turning that waste material into nutrition, which you then put on your garden to produce another another season of wonderful vegetables. Now, I think that's a, it's something to be I agree. Seen. I agree. Unfortunately, when you live in London, I mean, even though we, when we moved into this house a few months ago, I was so thrilled that for the first time in London, I was in a borough that was going to take compost. And then I realised that you get no joy out of composting when you're just giving it to the council. No, no, no. You've got to be, you've got, it, it's a very personal thing. It's yeah. a personal experience, that compost. I, I feel almost as strongly about my compost heaps as I do about any other part of... Or, or not quite as much as I feel about you, of course. Um, I want to give a couple of other th- quick things mm-hmm. um, uh, because I want to r- r- rattle through cream and butter. Who doesn't love cream? Everything is. Who easy. doesn't love cream and butter? Yeah, no, I agree with you there. Awful. Awful. Oh, God. Passion. No. Passion. However, my top love of all food things are long lunches is? and longer lunches. And best <laughs> of all is a very, very long Sunday lunch. I agree with you. There's something very special about a long Sunday lunch and, and that it, you know, it, it, you know, you, well, I know your routine. Long Sunday lunch, keep drinking. Do the first load of the dishwasher slightly piddled. Fall asleep in front of the telly, preferably a match of rugby. Wake up feeling bamboozled. Do another load of the dishwasher and go to bed. You know your father far too well. Um, <laughs> but what is wrong with that? What is wrong? I want to say is it, it's celebrating Nothing. all those things. Community, pleasure, appreciation and the fe- warmth of fellowship and, and a long snooze in the afternoon. That's absolutely perfection. I couldn't agree with you more. Love a long lunch. Talking of which, have you have you cooked anything reasonable recently? Interesting. We this week's been a very busy week, so we had a we had um, a nice weeknight supper, mm. and you know usually now I'm going to talk about salmon, and you are not allowed to to say anything because we're going to get to salmon in a later podcast because I know you've got a lot to say about it, but this week. We cooked some salmon, but not your typical fillet that you buy from the supermarket. We went to a fishmonger and got, you know, a full steak on the bone. And 
we fried it up and very simple fried it up by itself in some oil a little bit of butter basted a little bit flipped it so that it was browned on one side and then in a bowl mixed half a half a lemon got all the juice out tablespoon or so of honey quite a lot of chili flakes uh, and some herbs and lots of garlic whacked that on just before the salmon was finished cooking and it glazed a little bit so we had that but the other thing that we had that Peter randomly came home with, which I've seen in supermarkets before but never cooked, is something called Collini. Do you know what I'm talking about? Not a clue, no. It's Collini, otherwise known as sweet-stemmed cauliflower. Oh. Have you ever seen in the supermarket, they, or they basically, it looks like the cauliflower equivalent of tender stem broccoli. Yes. And I have to, you're making a very strange noise like you're about to read the Gruffalo, but we'll come back to that. Um... It was delicious. I steamed it for a couple of minutes and then just quickly flash fried it with some garlic powder. And it was extremely delicious. I think I, it, I, I might prefer it to tender stem. I knew you were going to react to that. I just knew you weren't going to let that oh, one slide. On. Life, life is too short to be able to use garlic powder. It doesn't taste the same as garlic. I use fresh garlic for some things, garlic powder for others. It has its use. I can feel a new podcast coming on on, on, to to garlic. Anyway, that's what I cooked. It was delicious. Bit of home cooking. Easy peasy. What about you? Well, last night I cooked what I must say I thought was a masterly supper with some some neighbours. It was rabbit in mustard sauce, wild rabbit in mustard sauce. It was really beautiful. Mustard sauce. Classic. Lapa à la moutarde, as the French would say. And I served it with with very thin pasta uh, called Fellini. Um, sold. I, I'm sold, by the way, but, pasta. But the sold. thing I wanted to really put in was, was the quince tart I made to go after it. Because this is the season of quinces, and I have a quince tree in my garden, and I had, I must say, an amazing number last year. This year I thought I wasn't going to get any, but in fact I've had about 20 off it. And you, what you do is you, they're very, very tough things. Um, mm. So you've got to grate them pretty finely. Then you stew them with a bit of water, maybe a bit of quince ratafia, which is another story, um, and a bit of sugar and a bit of honey. Uh, and then you cook it all down until it becomes all, it goes sort of wonderful amber colour. And then you put it mm. inside a, uh, oh, and then also grated orange peel. And it just gives Ooh. a huge lift to yes. it. Yes. And then you just put it in a shell, warm it up, and then cut it into sections. And I made it, served it with honey ice cream. And do you know... Oh, honey ice cream. Was it homemade? Uh, of course it was. Yes. No garlic was. powder in that, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably a wise move. Okay. Uh, I think we've I think we got just time for a tip, don't you? We do have time for a tip. My tip's totally unrelated to anything we spoke about. So uh, the other day I uh, had a gin and tonic, which I like. And as you may know, I like a gin, a hefty gin with a splash of tonic and a good few pieces of ice so that they just nicely dilute as you drink it away. Lots of lemon, bit of Angostura bitters, away you go. So made myself a gin and tonic the other day. Couldn't quite understand why I felt mildly sloshed after one just didn't wasn't quite right um later explained to me by peter who had um frozen some gin and tonic into ice cubes <laughs> so instead of being diluted 
I was just seeping extra, extra drink into my drink. It was just elongating the process. So for those who would like an extra punch to their punch, freeze yourself some gin and tonic and add it to your gin and tonic. Well, you know, that's very interesting because I noticed you add a little dash of Angostura bitters. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I so I will also give a, a, a drinking tip for Angostura bitters. Add okay. a couple of drops of Angostura bitters to every glass of a Bloody Mary. And it, wow. And it, it, actually, it's another thing I found in, in Mother's Recipe box, actually. And it's really fantastic because it has that little note of bitterness that makes the mm. next mouthful so desirable. So you get this lovely yes. fruitiness, you get the alcohol, you get the, 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 the punch from, from um, Worcester sauce and maybe a little horseradish. Some people like a little, little sherry. But a couple of dashes of, of Angostura bitters in there really makes a huge difference. So that's my tip. Fabulous. Well, darling, okay. I, I would try yours if only I drank gin and tonic. But I don't. And I would try yours if only Bloody Mary wasn't practically top of my hate list. <laughs> so altogether, <laughs> we we end on yet a high note. We do. And um, I shall look upon garlic powder in a new new light. <laughs> <laughs> I won't look upon offal in any different light. No. <laughs> well, I'll speak to you next week. Same place, same time. Same subject. Food, food, glorious food. And that is definitely time to wrap. (laughs) 